0: I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean, wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 16, Friends and Enemies. Today's proverb comes from William Hazlitt. I'll read it twice. He will never have true friends who is afraid of making enemies. Once more, he will never have true friends who is afraid of making enemies. I'll note right off the bat that Hazlitt distinguishes between true friends and enemies. There's never a need to describe true enemies. All enemies are true enemies. There are many kinds of friends, though. We distinguish between our friends and our true friends. Friendship is the kind of thing that we feel the need, or have felt the need over the centuries, to describe with great precision. We believe that friendship is a somewhat ambiguous term. Great philosophers, Cicero, Aristotle, many others, of course, have spent a lot of ink trying to describe what makes a friend a true friend and distinguishing uh, the true friend from someone that you merely enjoy uh, passing time with or someone who's an enjoyable diversion. The concept of friendship is ambiguous, but enemies is not. Or the concept of the enemy is not... Ambiguous once you're an adult. I remember in my 20s encountering Christ's teaching on enemies in the New Testament. Love your enemies. And thinking that this command to love your enemies was far more a command suited to governments and institutions than individuals. When I heard people my own age, people also in their 20s or maybe a little older than me, refer to someone as their enemy, it always seemed very melodramatic. People would very occasionally refer to he is an enemy of mine. It sounded so mock heroic. I was always incredulous. Do you have... enemies. (laughs) enemies <laughs> amazing do you have foes as well when was the last time you heard someone refer to one of their foes this is fantasy language at least this is the way that I regarded it not sheer sure fantasy language the people who have enemies are also making trade embargoes and uh, declaring war and signing peace treaties I mean this is This is the kind of task that someone undertakes when they have enemies. I don't impose trade embargoes. I don't have enemies. This is the way that I thought of it when I was in my 20s, at least. This all changed when I grew up, and I got married, and I had children, and I entered my career. It was at the point that my career was beginning, I was five or six years into it, that I said some things in the classroom that angered some people, angered some students, angered their parents. And so they went after my career. I imagine that this happens at least at some point to almost any teacher who teaches long enough. Eventually, someone's not going to like you. And eventually, someone's going to not like you so much that they're going to start making formal complaints about your incompetency. Well, I was accused of being a proselytizer. And my career was on the line. And it was not until I had a wife and children and a career by which I supported my wife and children that I understood that those who were hostile to me to the point of taking away my job and threatening my wife and my children or their safety, these were enemies. It was not until I had something to lose, something great to lose, that I really had enemies. Now, I'm not suggesting of course, that young people don't have true friends or cannot be true friends. Um, Because the quote says, he will never have true friends who is afraid of making enemies. Now, there are people, of course, who have enemies, but are not true friends because they're afraid of making enemies. There might also be some people who are true friends and have no enemies, but they're not afraid to, or because they're not afraid to. So Hazlitt's not necessarily making a one-to-one correlation between having true friends and having enemies. It's this fearlessness. That's the essence of this quote. This is a quote about fearlessness. Now, this fearlessness is born out of the confidence that a man has in his friends. It is hard To maintain true friendships, thus, when you have no enemies and nothing by which you could understand a threat that would determine enemies. What this often means is that the friendships of our youth don't necessarily last very long. When I consider all the people that I had and thought of as friends in my early 20s, as opposed to now, most of the friendships of my youth have fallen off. Not because there's been a falling out, though. Some of it has to do with moving. Moving away from many different cities, taking new jobs, that sort of thing. But a man changes, and his ideal of friendship changes, and his approach to the world changes when he has something great to lose. The quote suggests this deep connection between true friendship and a willingness to make enemies, and I recognize this willingness in the way that I support my truest friends. My support of my friends is unconditional. And when I am refer to my true friends, I mean, I am referring to an extremely small number of people. When I think of true friends, I don't want to put a number on it, but it's less than five. There are people I love passing time with. There are people I love having a drink with, having a laugh with. But the kind of friendship that is describing, true friendship... Unconditional friendship. This is rare. In Aristotle's rhetoric, he writes that with our friends, we're not ashamed of what is conventionally wrong. For if we have this feeling, we do not love them. If therefore we don't have it, it looks as if we did love them. We also like those with whom we don't feel frightened or uncomfortable. Nobody can like a man of whom he feels frightened. And when it comes to my true friends, I feel no fear in their presence. I'm not afraid of letting them down. And when I read this for the first time in the rhetoric, with our friends, we're not ashamed of what's conventionally wrong, What Aristotle's referring to is a sense of self that is manifested in our friends. And so in the same way that a man doesn't fear doing what is wrong when he is alone, so to be with your friends is almost like entering into a state of aloneness simply because you do not fear what they will do to you. You don't fear disappointing them. And I would say that this is an unusual feature of of the truest friendship, is a lack of fear in disappointing them. The love that I have for my friends is unconditional in that way. But it's not just the unconditionality It is my own recognition of my other, my second soul, like an alienated soul that I find in them, which opens up this interesting question in my mind. This understanding of friendship, Hazlitt's understanding of friendship, opens up this really interesting question, and in order to turn my attention to that question, I want to read another quotation from a well-known 20th century Christian thinker. I don't want to tell you right off the bat who this is. Here's the quote. If you are a married woman, let me ask you this question. As much as you admire your husband, would you not say that his chief failing is his tendency Not to stick up for his rights and yours against the neighbors as vigorously as you would like. Is he a bit of an appeaser? The quote is from C.S. Lewis, actually. And he points out this interesting feature of a married relationship, which I believe sets a marriage relationship apart from a purely friendly relationship. This quote, this question, as much as you admire a husband, isn't one of his biggest failings, his tendency to not stick up for his right and yours against the neighbors as vigorously as you would like. There is, oddly enough, though a man would lay down his life... his wife and his children, and though, of course, it is a man's role to care for his family and to die for them and to defend them in body and in spirit, men have a curious tendency, husbands have a curious tendency, Lewis says, to not seek out enemies on behalf of their wives. This is fascinating, I find Because it immediately rings true when I compare the way that I assess my friend's claims of being wronged and the way that I assess my wife's claim of being wronged. When I'm speaking with my true friends, were one of my true friends to say, man, there is a guy at work who is giving me a hard time and it's making my life miserable. My knee-jerk response to that would be, oh, how dare he? What did he do? Tell me about it. Share with me this injustice that I may also be outraged. And that's this, true friends means through thick and thin, us against the world. However, I've noticed this tendency on rare occasions when my wife is frustrated with somebody from work. When she tells me something which has frustrated her, in an encounter that she had with a cashier, with a, uh, I don't know, anybody out in public space so far as her work is concerned, when she tells me of something that has upset her... I find that my knee-jerk reaction is not to say, how dare he? My immediate reaction is to say something more along the lines of, well, I think there's a couple ways of looking at this. That's the way that I respond to my wife's outrage, to my wife's concern that her rights against her neighbors are not being vigorously defended. Well, I don't know. Let me think about this. It seems like there's two sides to this story, and you might not be seeing everything. I don't know that—I rarely say that to my friends, my true friends, when they claim to be wronged. My response to my friends when they allege to have been wronged is to immediately resort to Hazlitt's fearlessness so far as making enemies is concerned— I'm not immediately willing to make enemies on behalf of my wife. Now, the reason why I'm not exactly troubled by this has to do with, well, a perusal of aphorisms and maxims on the subject of Men's relationships with women, this ancient account of life between the sexes, is often deeply disturbing to modern men and women, especially modern Christians, because the ancient wisdom on men and women's relationships, or husbands and wives' relationships, is that a marriage is not a friendship. It's become maybe fashionable, that might not be the word. It's become common for people getting married, or maybe people offering a toast on an anniversary much later, to say something along the lines of, Today I married my best friend. Or, 25 years ago today, I married my best friend. This claim has never resonated with me. And it does not resonate with some of the most ancient wisdom. Proverbial wisdom. Storytelling wisdom. The rather standard account by intellectuals, artists, novelists. That there is beauty in the married relationship, but it is not the same beauty as the beauty of a friendship. My wife is most decidedly my favorite person on the earth. I favor her more than anyone else. But the favor I give my wife is not free in that I have made a binding oath to this woman to serve her. Now, I love the service and the favor that I bestow on my wife, it is sometimes difficult to bestow favor on her and to treat her as my most highly favored person. But my relationship with my wife is a formal relationship. My relationship with my best friends is informal. I don't have a role to fill with my friends. The fact that I don't have a role to fill with my friends means that my friendships, my truest friendships are, and I say this not as an insult to my friends, my relationship with my best friends is not productive in the same way that my relationship with my wife is productive. A marriage ought to be Productive. It ought to be productive of children, happy children, pious children. A marriage is also productive of the lifelong labors that both husband and wife will perform. The productivity of the house, the advancement of career. A marriage tends towards these kind of productions. A marriage must serve the church, not just in terms of prayers and warm feelings. Husbands and wives owe the church children. My relationship with my friends is not productive, though, nor is it supposed to be. For this reason, I don't feel embarrassment in front of my friends, as Aristotle says. With our friends, we're not ashamed of what's conventionally wrong. There's a real sense in which my friendship with my best friends exists for its own sake. I love my wife for her own sake, but a marriage does not exist for the sake of itself. There's even a sense in which two people who conspire for a productive friendship always describe their friendship in terms of its productivity. It's for this reason that, that we distinguish between a friend and a work friend. A work friendship is a productive friendship. And a productive friendship is a real sort of thing. But for the pure, it's something different than the purely leisurely relationship. My relationship with my best friends, though... Doesn't need to be productive. Very little of what we do is productive in a conventional sense. We talk of music. We talk about what we've been reading. We banter about work. We commiserate. I don't feel embarrassed around my friends when I am personally not productive. They are the people that I recourse to for that thick and thin consolation that friends offer one another which is fearless of making enemies, us against the world. My relationship with my wife, though, is not so casual. I do not really fear letting my friends down. I fear letting my wife down. There is a stressful aspect to productivity that shoots through a marriage. Which means I'm rarely at my perfect ease when I'm with my wife. I want her to think highly of me. I want to impress her. 14 years into marriage, I want to impress her. I'm less concerned with impressing my friends. My friends, because we need not impress one another, are far more liberal with praise. My friends regularly tell me, I liked what you wrote on this subject. The story that you sent me was very good. My wife is very hard to impress, though. Now, in the earliest years of my marriage, I thought that There was something wrong with this condition, (laughs) I thought. I must be tanking here. She was more willing to praise me during our courtship. However, when the courtship became a marriage, I noticed that she was substantially harder to please, harder to impress. I think that this is merely the nature of a productive marriage, though. A wife who is too easily impressed by her husband will not inspire great things from her husband. Now, of course, anytime you have spouses that just entirely flat out refuse to praise and credit one another, obviously, that's diseased. But if spouses are too easily pleased with one another, if they're too quick to offer praise, I become sluggish. In order to keep the relationship productive and in order to continue this sense of respect and awe that man and wife have for one another, you must conceive of the marriage as a kind of formal relationship where there is some real fear in disappointing the other person and it's that fear of disappointing the other person that does not create animosity between husband and wife. I would not say animosity, but there is a tension between husband and wife that is perpetually overcome by the productivity of a marriage. In the same way that faith is not antithetical to doubt, but doubt is simply the soil in which faith grows up, the productivity of a marriage grows out of the soil of the tension of misunderstanding. And the fear of letting down. I enjoy spending time with my wife. I find her a fine companion in watching a movie, having a discussion about the state of the world. But at the same time, she keeps me on my toes. She keeps me on edge. Now, this is because we have a formal relationship. It's because we have been granted roles by the church that we must fulfill. Productivity is not optional. Formal relationships are different than merely friendly relationships. And formal relationships tend to outlast friendly relationships. Here's a quote. One of, one of my favorite television programs of the last decade... Features a character named Lenny Ballardo, who is the Pope. And in a scene in this program, when he's just entering into his papacy and he's meeting all the people in the Vatican that will tend to him, take care of him, that he will answer to and get advice from, there's a certain nun who brings him his breakfast in the morning. And this is some pious old woman who, if I'm remembering correctly, either rubs his shoulder or pinches his cheek or something like that when she sets his food down. And he says this, friendly relationships are dangerous. They lend themselves to ambiguities, misunderstandings, and conflicts, and they always end badly. Formal relationships, on the other hand, are as clear ...as spring water. Their rules are carved in stone. There's no risk of being misunderstood. And they last forever. Viewing a marriage as a formal relationship... ...is perhaps not as romantic... ...as viewing it... ...in terms of pure friendship... There seems something special about the romantic relationship, which is also the height of friendship. However, my friends and I, my best friends and I, have no roles. And when I look back on my friendships in my late teens and early 20s, neither did those relationships have roles, they were not formal. And what that means is that very few of those relationships lasted. Very few of the friendly relationships I had in my youth have lasted. We had no obligations to one another. No defined obligations. But I have defined obligations to my wife. This, of course, leads to some kind of stress. And because modern people have this hatred of stress all problems are ultimately reduced to stress we want to reinvent marriage as a relationship in which there should be as little stress as possible and of course i feel no stress when i'm with my best friends when i'm with my best friends we're cutting it up slapping each other on the back pushing each other into the bushes no judgment us against the world But the formality of my relationship with my wife leads to stress. But this is a productive stress. If there were no stress I felt when I was with my wife, if there was no stress I felt in my marriage, I don't know why I would get out of bed in the morning. Stress is a thing to a great extent that we have to learn to be grateful for. It is a goad. It's a charge. There's an extent to which stress in a marriage is is the battery that makes it move. Of course, modern society also likes to look at good old things and figure out how to make them more pleasant. We look at traditional things, modern men look at traditional things and they want to know how can we make this more fun? It's mostly good. How can we make it all good? It's mostly pleasant. How can we make it all pleasant? Marriage is pleasant. Marriage is sweet. But there are a few aspects of it that traditionally have been unpleasant. What if we could just like get a scalpel and carve out the unpleasant aspects and turn marriage into a purely pleasant thing? But it's the unpleasant aspect of old things that makes them work. That's the reason why they've been kept around. If the unpleasant aspects of an old institution like marriage were not necessary, somebody smarter than you would have gotten rid of them a long time ago. So when we encounter stress in the marriage relationship and when we are relieved in that stress when we are with our best friends, Both of these are good. God has appointed one, and He has appointed the other. Cool fact.